welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Episode 13, A Recap. Hey guys, welcome back to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly, your host. Today I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Michelle Martinko murder trial and that whole thing and Jerry Burns and all the mystery behind that family and all of his stuff. So let's dig right into it. After almost 40 years, Michelle Martinko's family could finally put a face on her unknown killer. After years of speculation as to who killed Michelle, all their questions were finally answered. But for the friends and family of Jerry Burns and the community he had spent his entire life in, the questions were just beginning. Why did Jerry Burns target a seemingly random 17-year-old girl in the mall on December 19, 1979? Why Michelle? Why did he kill Michelle? Was this the first time he had murdered someone or had he done it before? Was it the final time he murdered someone or did he do it again after he killed Michelle? Could Jerry Burns have been a serial killer? Was this a one-time thrill kill? Well, a thrill kill is a premeditated or random murder that's motivated by the sheer excitement of the act. According to Wikipedia, those identified as thrill killers are typically young males, but other profile characteristics may vary. The major common denominator among those who commit thrill killings is that they usually feel inadequate and they're driven by a need to feel powerful. To a certain extent, they may make their victims suffer so that they can feel good. Sadism is fairly common in thrill killings. The killer might torture, degrade, or rape his victim before he takes their life. They frequently have an ideal victim type, someone who has certain physical characteristics, and we know that Jerry Burns was into young, blonde women. And here's how we know that. Even though the jury didn't get to hear about this in the trial because it was suppressed, we know for a fact that Jerry Burns' internet search history on his computer contained searches for violent sex acts against women, the torture and rape of young blonde women in particular, snuff-like films that depicted images of specifically blonde women being sexually assaulted and killed. The police found these searches on Jerry's computer. That's a fact. It's in all the documents, it's in news stories, and the investigators on the case speak openly about that fact. It's public knowledge. As I was reading through news articles and researching for this case, I came across an article on cbsnews.com that brought up an interesting comment Jerry made in the beginning of his conversation with Detective Matt Denlinger on the day he was arrested. And I'm going to read a little bit from that article right now. So on December 19th, 2018, 39 years after Michelle was murdered, Detective Denlinger interviewed Burns at his business. Matt Denlinger recorded Jerry Burns using a camera that he had hidden inside a coffee mug. Jerry Burns randomly mentioned Jody Hughes and Troot during the interview, just totally out of the blue. 
Hughes and Trout, if you don't know, was a news anchor in Iowa who was kidnapped near her car in a parking lot in 1995. She worked in Mason City, Iowa, which was two hours away from where Jerry Burns lived at the time. She's never been found. There was recently an ABC 2020 special all about Jody Hughes and Trout. You may have seen it. And there are still a lot of unanswered questions in that case. So at that time, when this article on CBS News was written, Mason City Police wouldn't disclose whether or not they were investigating Jerry Burns in the Hughes and Troop case, and his DNA, so far, is not connected to any other cases that I know of. I have an inside source who feels Jerry Burns is not connected to the Jody Hughes and Troop disappearance, but... It's interesting that Jerry Burns made a comment about another young, blonde, female murder victim. It's interesting enough that many news outlets have made mention of it. If he wasn't involved, maybe he just took an interest in cases like that over the years. I read a Rolling Stone article recently that posed the question, why were there so many serial killers between 1970 and 1999? And it got me thinking about the Jerry Burns trial in particular. The article stated that more than 80% of known American serial killers operated between 1970 and 1999. That period of time was actually coined as the golden age of serial murder. The reasons behind this vary, and they range from sociological changes to biology to technology, linguistics, and so much more. But what criminal justice expert Peter Voronsky found through his research is really fascinating. So this is a direct quote from the Rolling Stone article I read, and I'm going to read that right now. Over the course of his work, which began in 1979, Voronsky has deduced that serial killers generally develop the personality and compulsion befitting a serial killer when they're young. By the time they're 14, they're basically fully formed already. They generally start killing in their late 20s. As such, he looked back at what was happening in the world when murderers like John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Ted Bundy were growing up. And he discovered a link. They were all born during wartime. In cases like, for example, the BTK killer Dennis Rader and Richard Cottingham, the torso killer, Their fathers were returning war veterans who had PTSD, which was not a diagnosable illness until the 80s, he says. In short, these children who were already predisposed to violence were raised in potentially violent and likely broken homes. And I'm going to talk about how this relates to Jerry Burns in just a minute, so stick with me. But as times have changed, the world has changed. We obviously no longer operate in the mindset that the world is safe. No. And I'm sure you all know cold case investigator Paul Holes. Well, what Paul Holes says is that in the 1990s, he found that serial murders stopped occurring so randomly because the victim pool grew smaller as people began to take fewer risks. Like they weren't hitchhiking anymore, things like that. They knew they had to be aware of their surroundings and they knew. They needed to be careful. So serial killers at that time began focusing more on sex workers then. And then as sex workers started protecting themselves more and becoming savvier, the victim pool grew smaller yet. 
So murderers shifted to trolling their victims online, like with the Craigslist killer, for instance. So back to Jerry Burns, I'm not saying he was a serial killer, but I think it's worth looking into whether or not his DNA matches any other DNA samples of any unsolved crimes. I'm no John Douglas, but Jerry Burns very well could fit the profile of a serial killer in the 1970s, and there are a lot of similarities between his life and the life of other serial killers in the golden age of serial murder, which was 1970 to 1999. Burns randomly killed Michelle Martinko in a horrifically brutal manner. He had a fetish for pornography involving blonde women being killed. He got away with Michelle's murder for almost 40 years. So do you think he only killed that one time? He was in his mid-20s when he committed Michelle's murder. And I don't know a lot about the details of his life growing up or anything like that. But I do have a lot of questions and I think it's worth looking into a little further. Anyone who could brutally stab and murder a random girl in a mall parking lot, in the face, chest, and neck, and get away with it for almost 40 years, I just have a really hard time believing he didn't kill anyone else. And I have to go back to the deaths of Jerry Byrne's wife and the disappearance of his cousin. Now, local investigators in Manchester have stated that Burns is not a suspect in either of those cases. But... That's not what a lot of people in the community believe. And here's why. Brian Farmer Burns, Jerry's cousin, went missing on the exact anniversary of Michelle Martinko's death, December 19th, 2013. The exact date that Jerry Burns murdered Michelle Martinko 34 years prior to the day. Just a few days prior to that date, when Brian Burns went missing... And I've said this a million times this season, but I'm going to say it again. Just a few days before Brian Burns went missing, someone called in an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers regarding the Michelle Martinko murder. It did not lead to an arrest at that time, but police deemed that the tip was credible, and they pleaded for the person who called to please call back with more info. And they never did. December 19th. It all revolves around that date of December 19th. How could the two be a coincidence? I don't know how, I don't know why, but in my gut, I know that these incidents are related. They have to be. It's just too much of a coincidence. Brian Farmer Burns was declared legally dead in 2021, but the Manchester Sheriff's Department is still actively working on this case, and they feel that some new information given to them recently will help solve it in the near future. And I hope they're right. Additionally, in hindsight, Manchester locals have looked back at the suicide of Jerry Burns' wife, Patricia, in 2008. Investigators have said they have no reason to believe her death was anything other than a suicide, but at the time, they also didn't know Jerry Burns was a cold-blooded killer. Hindsight can change everything, but there's really no way to go back now and reinvestigate that death. I can only imagine how it would have been to live with Jerry Burns. 
I have no idea. Someone recently told me that Jerry and Patricia had been known to argue and that Jerry was kind of a yeller. You can hear that tidbit of info back in my cop convos episode. Although Jerry Burns was my neighbor, he was my country neighbor, which means his land and my land touched boundaries, and we lived just a few acres apart. We bought machinery from the company that he owned, but I never spoke to Jerry Burns. I only ever saw him from a distance when he came out to my farm to load and unload equipment. I don't know Jerry Burns, but I do know that he's the one who discovered his wife dead that day in 2008. And he's also the one who called 911 when he found her. And I have that 911 report in my possession. I just don't know a whole lot more than that. And it's not really something I can look into a whole lot with the resources I have. There are questions in everyone's mind, but I think those will remain questions. I don't think there will ever be any additional information on the death of his wife. So these questions, these doubts, all of these odd events and details that don't really have any firm explanations, they are all mysteries to me and to the Manchester, Iowa community. And that's why I named this season the Manchester Mysteries. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I'd move away from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where Michelle Martinko's cold case was something that people were still baffled about decades later, to the tiny town of Manchester, Iowa, where things just seem to be so safe and wonderful and nothing ever goes wrong, and then, boom, I haven't lived here very long at all and I find out that Michelle's murderer lived right next to me in the town I had moved to to get out of the city and away from crime. The story shook me. That, paired with other high-profile crimes in Iowa later that year, like the murder of Molly Tibbetts, made me hyper-aware of the fact that no matter where you live, no matter how seemingly safe of a bubble you're in, today, there's no such thing anymore as a small town where people don't have to lock their doors at night. Mayberry does not exist anymore. You may think you know your neighbor, you may think the person you're about to go on that date with is just great, and you may think the dude that runs that business is the best, but guess what? In life, you only know yourself, and sometimes even what you know about yourself can surprise you. If this podcast does one good thing for people, I hope it teaches you something as simple as locking your doors before you go to bed at night. Almost 30% of burglars enter a home through an unlocked door or window. A surprising number of criminals gain access to homes through opened or unlocked entrances, simply because their victims felt like they lived in a safe community where they don't have to lock their doors at night. And they were wrong. Thank you for listening to this episode. We're almost at the end of the Manchester Mysteries. Next week is the season finale, so stay tuned. And until then, you know what to do. Lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. 
please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 